Okay, you should all be in Philippians 3. Let's uh, pray and let's start our study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage before us, Lord, and we ask today that you would enable me to teach your word accurately, comprehensively, clearly, with passion, and Lord, above all else, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to our hearts as I speak. May your word do its work by the power of your Spirit, of convicting us, of changing us, transforming us, and, and bringing glory to you as we mature into the image of Christ. Amen. Okay, we finally get to Philippians chapter 3. I, uh, when we started the book of Philippians, I wasn't anticipating going quite as slowly as we've gone, but um, this is an important section, and we're not going to be speeding up so much. Um, he starts chapter 3, and of course, we've, we've the last two weeks been looking at Timothy and Epaphroditus. We've been looking at they, uh, how they... Uh, how they are examples of many of the principles of uh, loving others and serving others and being Christ-like and humble uh, that Paul has been teaching about. And they are good practical outworkings of examples of that that the Philippians can, can emulate. And as we come to chapter 3, he starts off by saying, finally... Finally, my brothers, brothers there meaning brothers and sisters, it's a generic term, uh, refers to us all. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, many people get stuck with the word finally, and the reason they get stuck with it is because, and it's a fair point, is because we're exactly halfway through the book. Now, some of you probably know people like that. It's just, just one more thing, and half an hour later, you're still in the same conversation. I, I can be prone to that a little myself. So, um, so the word finally here seems a little bit strange to us. We need to remember that the word translated finally here is elsewhere translated others um, and things like that. It, it's, it's a word that really, if you want to paraphrase how Paul is using it here, I think essentially what he's saying is he's saying, okay guys, now on to other things, on to other matters. Onto other stuff. And that's essentially what he's doing. And so for us, it serves as a marker, a good place to start a new chapter. It serves as a marker for like, okay, we've, we've had that discussion, now I need to talk about something else. It's not going to be completely unrelated, of course, it's the same letter to the same people, but now he's moving on to other matters. And the other matters that he's going to move on to, we'll have a look in a moment, but he introduces the whole section with this one verse where he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, rejoicing is something that, obviously, we see a fair bit. Paul has commanded them to rejoice, uh, mentioned rejoicing a couple of other times. Back in chapter 1 and verse 18, uh, he told them to, to rejoice. Uh, let me read that verse to you. Uh, he says, what then only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. 
So there he's talking about rejoicing, and I want us to, the reason I'm going back is I want us to notice the context. In the context of people preaching the gospel to deliberately cause Paul harm, in the context of people preaching the gospel to, to, uh, for one-upmanship, for the wrong reasons, selfishly motivated, in that context he's like, well, the gospel's being preached, so I'm going to rejoice in that. So the context of Paul's rejoicing is focusing, not on the negative, but on what God is doing that is good. Then in chapter 2, in chapter 2, in 18 and 19, um, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And there, the context of rejoicing is he's just been talking about uh, possibly being poured out as a drink offering. It may refer to death. At the very least, it refers to suffering. And he says, look, if I'm going to suffer, if I'm going to go through uh, suffering for the sake of you and for your faith, if it's good for you and your faith, I'm going to rejoice in that. And me, here in prison, which you're worried about and you're struggling with, you can rejoice in it as well. You, when you see my suffering and you struggle with my suffering, you can rejoice because God is using me. And so in both parts where he's talked about rejoicing, he's talked about rejoicing in circumstances that perhaps otherwise might lead not to rejoicing, but might lead to grumbling. He's dealt with grumbling in the previous chapter. In fact, that was the context of chapter 2. Do, don't do anything with grumbling or questioning that you might be blameless and innocent. So there you are in a situation where there's all sorts of suffering and trials going on, and the natural thing to do is to grumble and to question. And Paul says, no, rejoice. That's what we're going to do. We're going to rejoice in this circumstance. Now, as we deal in now in chapter 3 and verse 1, by the end of this sermon, we're going to see what this whole next section about is about. And it's about false teachers. We'll talk about them in a moment. And even in that context, as he preps them for this very polemic teaching, very raw, very rough, brutal, almost in places, when he preps them for that, he says, I want you to know this, he says, as we move on to other things, rejoice in the Lord. That's the command. Rejoice in the Lord. Now the key phrase here is in the Lord. When Paul saw people preaching the gospel for a bad motive, when Paul saw people using gospel ministry as an opportunity to, for one-upmanship over him, when he saw people um, using the gospel as a way to be successful, as a way to, to put Paul down, he rejoiced because though all of that is negative, in the midst of that negativity, the gospel was still going out. The true gospel was being preached, and the gospel, as Paul says elsewhere, is powerful unto salvation. It's got the power to save people. So Paul rejoices in that. 
When he looks at suffering, which is a horrible thing. Suffering is never a good thing in, in, in and of itself. Paul rejoices in that. Why? Because God is using that suffering for the sake of serving others. He's using that suffering for the glorifying of his name. There's good to be seen in it. And the key here to rejoicing is rejoicing in the Lord. It's, it's seeing that in the midst of difficult, trying, and unwanted circumstances, sovereign God is always working. God is always working. He allows trials to happen. He allows trauma to happen. He allows suffering to happen. And he has a plan, and his plan is good. Ephesians 1, the first book I taught through for you guys, deliberate and intended. Because there, in the, we went through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we saw all the spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ. And when you endure the most terrible of circumstances and life throws everything at you and you don't think you can take one more step, you are still saved. You were still chosen before the foundation of the world. You have still had your sin paid for, redeemed, bought by the blood of the Lamb who gave his life for you and then left that you might have the Holy Spirit to empower you to do the works that God chose you to do in the first place. And that you can rejoice in. I struggle with Christians who sometimes go over the line and they're like, oh, suffering, let's rejoice about suffering. And it's like you... If you ever go through suffering and you come across those Christians, you just want to slap them and say, shut up. Because that is not how you deal with people who are suffering. You come alongside them. You weep with them. You see what, how you can minister to their needs practically, physically, spiritually. You love on them. But, that's why James says, consider it joy when you suffer. He has to say, consider it joy, because it isn't joy. It's horrible. That's why it's called suffering. What James means when he says, consider it joy, is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you know what? Regardless of circumstances, you can rejoice in the Lord. There is always that to rejoice in. And what he says next is very interesting in regards to this. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me. And there's some interesting dynamics there with the you and the me. He's saying, look, you know, again, it's chapter two. Here I am willing to serve you. I'm going to repeat. It's no trouble for me to repeat this. And that's a good point for pastors. Sometimes I feel like I've told them this already. But, you know, we learn by repetition. We have to keep being reminded of stuff, and that's a good point. But what I'm really intrigued by here, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Literally, it's a safeguard. 
It's your protection. In other words, I told you to rejoice in chapter 1. I've told you to rejoice in chapter 2. By implication, he was saying, I rejoice in this and I rejoice in that. And it's no trouble for me to say again, rejoice in the Lord. Because it's going to be your protection. When circumstances are such that we're not prone to rejoice, when circumstances are such that we are prone to grumble, and when that grumbling is embraced and it leads to bitterness, and bitterness is a wicked combination of selfishness and pride, and the problem with bitterness, more than any other sin, is it's a sin that, because of the pride element of it, is naturally self-defeating. It's naturally self-denying. What I mean by that is this. I mean that if you look at your circumstances and you grumble, and your grumbling allows you to become bitter, then you are in a very deep sin, a very serious sin and a very dangerous sin, but the person, the people, the stuff that is wrong is not you, it's everything around you. Well, this isn't good and this isn't okay and this and everything else is the problem. And you, you protect yourself cover yourself with your bitterness to, to hide away the selfishness and the pride. How dare this happen to me? And so it becomes a sin that is self-perpetuating, self-defeating. And Paul says, here's your solution, folks. Your solution is to rejoice in the Lord. And that is going to be your protection. I have seen people who love the Lord dearly, allow a seed of bitterness into their heart that was watered and that grew, and it led to them walking away from the Lord completely and totally. Bitterness is the most destructive of sins. And, it, the, and, and you, you, are, you can look, um, many of you may have people you know like this too, but the church is littered with people who've walked away from the faith because amongst other things they allow bitterness to take root in their life. And the problem is, is that those people don't love the Lord anymore, don't walk with the Lord anymore and it's not their fault. It's God's fault. It's somebody else's fault because bitterness protects your own sinful heart. What is, this, what is your protection? How do you defeat such a dangerous enemy? You rejoice. You rejoice. That is your safeguard. There's this circumstance that is horrible. It's not nice. The Bible commands me to do this, and I don't want to do this. But I rejoice because God has called me to do something that's good for me. I rejoice because he's given me the spirit to enable me to do what I don't want to do. I rejoice because he's a good God and because in the midst of these trying circumstances, he is the one who is seeking my best. He wants the best for me more than I want the best for me. 
He knows how to bring the best to me far more than I know how to bring the best for me. And he says, rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in who he is. Rejoice in what he's done for us. Rejoice in who we are in him. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And like Paul, when you are going through suffering, you see that suffering as an opportunity to serve. You don't rejoice in the suffering, but you rejoice in the opportunity to serve. That's rejoicing. Where Paul, when you see people trying to cause you harm and God using some good in that, then you don't rejoice in people causing you harm, but you rejoice that good is coming from it. We've got to look for the opportunity to rejoice. We've got to look, and it's not, let me, let me be very clear, there are two things that this is not. This is not stoicism. I come from Britain, and we have the classic, classic British stiff upper lip. Well, you know, that's just how things are, and we're going to press on. Tally-ho, let's press on. Stoicism, let's get on with life. That's not what Paul's talking about. And the modern equivalent of that that I see far more here is positivity. That whole kind of positive thinking. Come on guys, let's look for the good. Let's be positive. Positivity. Let's, let's all be happy. Positive. Let's think the right way. And there's some truth to that. There surely is. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying, come on folks, let's focus on the good and be positive people. What he's saying is, is Christ Positivity is something that can be applied to anyone and everyone, but this can only be applied to Christians. Hey, Mr. Positivity, you're looking for the good and the bad? That's wonderful. That's going to carry you through and make you happy and give you a good life, and then you're going to die and you're going to rot away, and your soul will spend eternity in hell. Keep being positive. Positivity is often something that allows people to ignore their sin, Ignore their need for Christ and ignore the gospel message. It's a dangerous thing as well as a good thing. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, in Christ you have reason to rejoice. In Christ you recognize the salvation and the gifts that you have. In Christ you recognize the sovereignty of God. In Christ you can always, always rejoice regardless of circumstances. And that will protect you, and it will protect your heart. Now, it's an interesting introduction to the chapter. It's good teaching. I mean, it's good stuff from Paul. It's helpful. But look what it precedes. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's about to get into a section now on false teachers. Now, we're going to be in this for, for a couple of weeks, and it's something that needs to be said. And uh, I am constantly, constantly amazed at Christians who I see being blasé and lackadaisical about the concept of false teachers and false teaching. And I'll tell you, while we talk about positivity, a lot of it comes from that, this sort of, well, we mustn't be negative. 
We've got to be positive, people. There might be some good that's come from that ministry. Now, Paul is going to agree with that to a degree. Paul is going to look for an opportunity to... He's just said rejoice in the Lord, right? Now he's going to bring about some of the most terrible circumstances. He's going to use very strong language in multiple places. He is going to be harsh and firm. And he still thinks that we should rejoice in the Lord. So Paul is all for seeing the positive. Paul is all for rejoicing in the Lord in all circumstances. But when he talks about false teachers... Paul is a brutal, savage beast. He does not mince his words. He does not back down. He does not compromise. And neither should we. And it's very much on my heart this week. And I'll tell you why. It's on my heart because we've had the flooding down in Houston. And it's been terrible. And there was a hoo-ha, hoo-ha, down in, in Houston about the largest church in Houston not opening its doors for evacu- evacuees. And to cut a very long story short, this is the story. There was a lot of social media coverage, news coverage, saying, isn't it terrible that Joel Osteen of Lakewood, I think, or Lakeside Church, hasn't opened his doors of his church to, uh, to help the evacuees? And what was sad about that was that a lot of the reporting was false reporting. It was a good opportunity to jump on a guy and beat him up because, in fact, there were actually very good reasons and doc- documented reasons about why the doors couldn't open, and when they could, they did. And a lot of people of our persuasion took the opportunity to jump on him and beat him up a bit about that, which they shouldn't do because they weren't the circumstances. And that's a good lesson in not listening to gossip and trying to get the facts before you make judgments. But then in his defense, I saw all sorts of people, friends of mine, come to his defense and say, oh, people are so harsh on him, but he's not that bad. Lots of good has been done from his minute, and I just wanted to ah, scream. And I'll tell you why. Because Joel Osteen is a good example of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teachers. They teach you should have your best life now. They focus on riches in this life. They manipulate people so that they get their riches in this life. And they teach a gospel that if you are going to be pleasing to God, live for God as you should, which normally involves around giving money to them, then God will bless you. You're not blessed? Are you sick? Are you somehow struggling through life? You probably haven't given enough. You're probably not good enough. It's probably your own sin in your life. And all the focus is on here and now. And none of it's on the blessings in Christ. The guy can navigate his... Uh, navigate his way through the Bible much more than a blind Uber driver could find his way around town. And people are saying, well, maybe some good comes from his ministry. Let's be really clear about this. When somebody was ministering in sin for the wrong reasons, causing harm, seeking to put down Paul, Paul says, I rejoice the gospel's being preached. But when he deals with false teachers, 
as we're going to see in this passage, there is no positive cloud, silver lining. There is no spinning it for good. The good that comes out of this is that because these people teach a false gospel, it gives Paul an opportunity to proclaim in contrast what the true gospel is. Joel Osteen preaches a false gospel. If somebody talks about Jesus, don't be deceived. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? Get away from me. I never knew you, the Lord will say on that day. People who do things, great things, big things, grand things, in the name of Jesus, well, some of them will stand before him and he'll say, I don't know you. How do we know those kind of ministries? Certainly great ministries, grand ministries, big ministries aren't exempt because they're the very things that are being spoken about. We know because of the message that they preach. And I will never, never be shy to tell you that the aberration that is the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. And those who teach it and those who proclaim it, are some of them saved despite it? Are some in their churches saved despite it? Perhaps, but I don't even care. You stay as far away from that rubbish as you possibly can. We should be warned about it. We should stay away from it. Anyone starts talking about best life now. Anyone starts talking about you getting rich or blessings or you being healed because you have enough faith. You run a mile. That is not the gospel. And I say all of this because Paul is saying straight off the bat, no warm-up, no getting yourself ready other than rejoicing. He says, these false teachers are three things. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. And we're going to look at what he means by those three terms. Okay? Firstly, these false teachers, what's the false teaching? Well, a lot of it isn't explained in detail. Some of it we'll see a little bit of. Some of it becomes clearer. But the best we can understand is that these false teachers are what we call Judaizers. And this is what the Judaizers did. And by the way, they're around today still even now. The Judaizers said this. They said, it's wonderful that we have Christ dying on the cross for our sins and we can be saved by the blood of Christ. They would talk in Christian terms and they would sound Christian. But what they did is they said, but obviously Jesus came for the Jews. And so for you to be able to benefit from the gospel message, you need to be a Jew first. So if you're a Gentile, then you're going to need to be circumcised, you're going to need to do the law, take the law upon yourself, become a Jew in every sense, and then you can put your faith in Christ and you can be saved by the gospel. Like most false gospels, it had elements of the gospel, but it was the gospel plus. And as soon as you have the gospel plus anything, you don't have the gospel anymore. 
The gospel is salvation by faith. Paul's going to be going to, oh, we're going to have this in the next few weeks. The clear preaching of the gospel in Paul in response to the false teachers. But the salvation that we have in Christ, our gospel is salvation by faith. You throw in any works there and you no longer have a gospel that saves. It's one of the reasons why the cults, though they talk about Christ long and laboriously, won't know him, don't know him. Because they have a gospel of works. And they talk about grace. They talk about faith. The Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on your door will say, we believe we're saved by faith. We believe we're saved by grace. They're well trained. They know what terms to use. But when you prod and when you poke, their definition of faith and their definition of grace involves works. And so these Judaizers, these Judaizers were saying, basically, you become a Jew, then you can become a Christian. It's a two-step process. You're a Jew first, and then you move, you graduate from Judaism to Christianity. Paul does not say, hey guys, you've got it slightly wrong. He is about to, in no uncertain terms, declare them to be unsaved. First of all, he calls them dogs. The term dog was a, a term that wasn't grossly insulting, but it was certainly a slight. We've come across it in our uh, studies in the evenings in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 7, where the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus, and she talks about the, uh, the puppies getting scraps from under the table. Jesus refers to her as puppies. It's, it's a softer term, it's a little bit nicer. But you see, the idea behind this was that dogs was a negative term. They didn't think of dogs as being cute, fluffy pets that are... Oh, my, oh is it come back again? Is my battery all right? Light seems to be on. Um, the, uh, the, the, gospel, uh, the gospel message that we have is one that makes us shy away from insults. Paul's going to challenge this a little bit for us right now. This phrase is not grossly insulting, but it was a religious term, and it was a way of talking about the uncleanliness of the Gentiles. The Jews were very, very keen on their cleanliness, ceremonial washing, not eating unclean meats, and the Gentiles were dirty. You know, they ate pork. They didn't wash as they should. They, they were dirty people. They looked down upon them, and they called them dogs. And so the dogs became a religious term that Jewish people, faithful Jewish people, would use to speak of non-religious Gentiles. Okay? Now let's think for a moment about how Paul uses this. He is talking about people who are saying, we are the protectors of Judaism. He's talking about people who said, we are going to keep the law. You need to keep the law. If you want to be a Christian, you've got to keep the law. These are the protectors of the law. And Paul uses a term that is only used to by the Jews to refer to Gentiles. Isn't that ironic? 
Irony is going to be the, core, the word of the day here for these next three points. It's ironic. And just to add to the irony, just so you have it by way of background, remember our introduction to Philippians in the book of Acts chapter 16? Philippi was a church that was founded when Paul went to go and meet with the Jews to proclaim the gospel to them in the town of Philippi, the city of Philippi, and there was no synagogue because there was such a small Jewish population. And so when there was no, not enough Jews for a synagogue, they would traditionally meet by the riverside. So Paul goes to the riverside to find the Jews, and there, even there, the key person he meets, Lydia, is not Jewish, but is someone who has come to believe in the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's come to place her faith in Yahweh, but she, by birth, is Gentile. There were virtually no Jews in Philippi. Philippi is the most Gentile of churches, and he says to these Gentile believers, watch out for the dogs. Very clear what he's saying. We are the clean ones. And those who ironically are arguing to keep the law are the dirty ones. That's your irony. The second thing he says to them is he says, look out for the evildoers. He calls these false teachers evildoers. Okay? So what he's saying here is that they do evil. Well, that sounds obvious. It just means that they're sinners, right? No, it doesn't mean that they're just that they're sinners. What it means is this. These are a group of people whose very false teaching emphasized the point that they were the keepers of the law. They were the ones doing good. And they would say that those who didn't keep the law were lawbreakers, weren't doing what was good, weren't keeping the law as they should. And Paul, again, with irony, he twists it around and he says, these false teachers, they are the evildoers. Those who think that they're keeping the law are in fact breaking God's laws. They're the ones doing evil. And in the same way, the third term he uses is a similar ironic twist. He says, look out for those who are the mutilators, who mutilate the flesh. Now I'm going to try and explain this without offending any sensibilities, but let's just go through it logically and sequentially. These people are teaching Gentiles, and where have they come, by the way? Where are these false teachers coming to? Look out for them. They must be around the corner or in, in their midst or on their way. I mean, they're nearby. They're coming to Philippi. Why are they coming to Philippi? Because it's great hunting ground. The church is full of Gentiles. You want people to have to change and become Jewish? Go find the place with all the Gentile Christians. So they're going to come into the church and say, you guys aren't truly saved because you haven't taken upon the law. Look at you all with your your uncircumcised members being unclean because you haven't gone through the ceremonial act of circumcision. You need to be circumcised. And if you convert to Judaism, even today as an adult, it can be quite a commitment to make as an adult to be circumcised. And what Paul says is he does the same ironic twist he says, you're mutilators. 
your mutilators. And there is an implication here, not just of them mutilating other people, but them having been mutilated themselves in the sense that their circumcision doesn't warrant anything. It means nothing. Now let's understand Paul's position here. We've seen it in the book of Ephesians. Paul is the one to whom God revealed the mystery of the gospel. That not just that God, like the prophet said, would, would one day save Gentiles as well as Jews en masse, but that the Jew and the Gentile would come together into one body, the body of Christ, the church. And Paul, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, talks about him having, saving those who were near and those who were far off. The Gentiles were separated from God. The, the Jews had the covenants, they had the promises, they had the history, the prophecies. They, 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 had, they knew who Yahweh was. And Christ was simply a fulfillment. It was receiving Christ, theoretically, it should have been a small step for the Jewish mind. We know who Messiah is, he is the Messiah, let's believe in the Messiah. Simple, done. But for the Gentiles, they were far off. But faith in Christ brought them near. Circumcision didn't bring them near. Taking on the law didn't bring them near. Their faith in Christ was sufficient to save them, uncircumcised Gentiles, as much as the Jews who had been circumcised and were keeping the law. Now this whole relationship with the law, Paul is going to explain next time and we'll look at it in more detail. And Paul's language gets even stronger. He rants. He rails. I imagine him shaking his fist as he's writing it. But what is clear here is this, that Paul believes passionately in Gentile mission. He passionately believes you preach the gospel to the Gentiles and they believe in the gospel and they're saved by the blood of Christ. And that is the gospel and that's all that is needed. And you start putting hurdles and hindrances in their way and you have lost the gospel. And so he takes these self righteous, legalistic people imposing their rules and their regulations upon the Gentile Christians and he twists their words around and he points them to the truth which is the Gentiles who you are bringing yourself down to to try and get them to be circumcised they're not the dogs, you're the dogs because they're in the kingdom of God and you're not these people that you're telling to keep the law because they're these wicked Gentiles and they're these evildoers, you're the evildoers because these Gentiles understand the gospel and you don't understand the gospel. And he says, here you are with your pride in your circumcision seeking to circumcise others. And he says, you are simply mutilators of the flesh. And we, in verse 3, are the circumcision. Now that is a powerful statement. 
the we here in context has to refer not just to Paul, not just to Paul and Timothy and Silas and whoever else is, is with him at the time. Paul and Timothy are the ones who are listed as the writers of the letter. The we refers to us, Philippians. You and me, guys. We're the circumcision. In other words, Paul refers to people who are not circumcised in the flesh as being the circumcision. Now we need to be very clear about the point that he is making here. Very clear. What he's saying is this, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's three things that makes the we the we. There's three things that brings this group of people together, that, that characterizes this group. The three things are that they worship by the Spirit, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Now, we're going to talk about that, but perhaps not this week even, but we're going to talk about that, but go back to the circumcision. What is interesting is he's talking about people who worship in the Spirit as being circumcised. He's talking about people who glory in Christ Jesus as being circumcised. And he's talking about people who put no confidence in the flesh, which contextually means the keeping of Mosaic law, as being the circumcised. And physically, they're not circumcised. So what does that mean? What does he mean? Let's take a step back. Under Mosaic law, under Mosaic law, the Jew had to be circumcised. It wasn't new to the law of Moses. The Abrahamic covenant before it said that the Jew had to be circumcised too. Moses reiterated that. But the act of circumcision was something that distinguished the Jew from others. It was, a, we are not like them, we're different. This is a distinguishing mark for us, as it were. So they were distinguished. So God's people were the circumcised in contrast to the uncircumcised. Now, it seems a very strange thing to distinguish someone. If you're going to distinguish someone, you might put an X on their forehead or something like that because you see the forehead everywhere you go. But to be frank, he's distinguishing them by something physically that isn't seen day to day. So it seems a little bit crazy in one sense. But what circumcision symbolizes is very significant. It symbolizes a removal of flesh. A removal of flesh. And Paul, as we know elsewhere, talks about the flesh and the body as being the, the location of sin. When the prophet Jeremiah elsewhere spoke about circumcision, he went on to talk about the time coming where there would be a circumcision of the heart. Now, multiple times, I believe the book of Deuteronomy was the first time, Jeremiah speaks about it, and elsewhere in the prophets, we, we dealt with this in our History of the Holy Spirit series, where they talk about the need for Israel not only to be circumcised in the flesh, but to be circumcised in the heart. In the same way that physical circumcision meant a removal of the flesh, so at the same time, 
they needed to have a circumcision of the heart where their pride and their hardness of heart was removed by faith. Being a Jew didn't save you. Keeping the law didn't save you because above all else, you couldn't keep the law. But the Jews believed, well, you know, I've been circumcised, I keep the law, I'm good, I'm off to the kingdom. And Jesus comes to Nicodemus, we'll talk about him more next time. Nicodemus, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a teacher, a trainer of other Pharisees, no less. And he says, unless you believe, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. You've got everything in place, Nicodemus, in the flesh. But what Paul is saying in Philippians 3.3 is the circumcision that matters is the circumcision of the heart. And the circumcision of the heart is characterized by placing no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision of the heart is someone who worships in the spirit, whose faith is not revolving around the physical realm. It's somebody who glories in Christ. Folks, legalism is alive and well. There are Christians who glory in their good deeds, Christians who glory in their Christian traditions and Christian background. There are, there are those who go to church, who um, believe that worship has to be done a specific way or it doesn't count. Not focusing on the heart. And there are Christians who place much confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. What God did with Israel is he took his people and he marked them and he set them apart. And in this church era, we are God's people. We have been marked by the blood of Christ like the doorposts at the Passover. And us applying the blood by faith in our hearts is the circumcision of our hearts. And we are the circumcised. And we are God's chosen people. And the message to the Judaizers is the same as it always has been. It's the same that it was to Nicodemus and to the Pharisees. And it's the same as it is today to the Hebrews Roots movement that teaches this same, exact same rubbish today. And that is this. Don't place your confidence in the flesh. Worship is a spiritual thing. Glory in Jesus Christ and show that you are one of God's chosen ones. And the desire to get everybody to conform to your rules and your Judaizing is evidence of you not being saved. And that, again, my friends, is why I warn you again and again and again about the sin of legalism.
Not every form of legalism leads to a false gospel, and not every form of legalism results in people not being saved. But legalism always is putting confidence in the flesh. Legalism is always looking to works. Legalism is always seeking one's own glory. Let us not be legalists who impose rules on other people that Paul does not, and Jesus does not, that God does not, that his word does not impose upon anybody else. Now, we have communion today, so I'm going to leave it there. Next week, we're going to come back. There's a lot I want to say about these three things that mark the circumcision. And then Paul is going to go on and talk about his circumcision. He's going to talk about his fleshly qualifications. And he is going to show you exactly how much value and worth he places in them. So, uh, let's pray. And we'll come to that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that we would be brutal with false teaching. That we would be brutal with false doctrine. That we wouldn't make excuses for ministries that preach false gospels. Be they gospels of legalism, of Judaizing, of prosperity, or anything else. And Lord, we thank you that we are your people, that we are saved, that our hearts are circumcised, that we're set apart from you. And may we live for you day by day. Amen. Amen.